Welcome back, friends, to another exciting edition of Script V Manuscript. I am your co-host Terry here with. That's your. That's your. Oh, cue. that's my cue. Yeah. Uh, co-host Joe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, today we've got a another exciting episode um, where we're going to discuss. Uh, those of you who listen to the Dune podcast, if you if you hung in until the end, yeah, first of all, God bless you. Yeah, <laughs> then you know what we're going to talk about. Um, and so we are excited to do another science fiction this time, sci-fi horror. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of a twist with the sci-fi. But before we get to that, let's start with the with our usual stuff. So this, of course, is the podcast where we discuss films and books and the adaptations. Thereof, yeah. Um, whether they be uh, from book to movie or reverse, yeah. so um, we are fans of storytelling. We are, and we are here to talk about storytelling and what we love about it, and to discuss the various mediums, media, uh, the various media of of storytelling. Indeed. So, the primary two being visual and uh, written. Written, yeah. So there are there are certainly other ways to tell those those kinds of stories, and we'll probably talk about some of those. Yeah. So, what do we got today? Where, where are we starting today? Well, uh, first of all, I, I want to update our listeners. Those again, those of you who who've been listening in, um, what we're reading, what we're watching. Okay. Um, I have finished Midnight Mass. Okay. I don't want to talk a whole lot about it, mm-hmm. but I do want to say this for those of you who started watching Midnight Mass on my recommendation. It's not my fault. <laughs> my pastor told me to watch it. Okay, it's his fault, and I hate it too. Yeah. So. I'll just well, he he wasn't thrilled with it. No, no, I, so. it, it, truly, Flanagan. It's it's really it's it's quite a shame. Flanagan is probably um, one of the one of the gifted minds. Um, he's a great artist when and and really knows his craft from a very technical standpoint. Yeah, he's a good he's, visual storyteller. I think he's yeah. just bad with story. He's bad yeah. with it, the 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 plot and the theme mm-hmm. um, uh, and. The timelessness of story. It, I mean, we've seen a lot of guys like that, yeah. right? Like, um, I mean, Ryan Johnson's the one that immediately sure. comes to mind. Who sure. you look at him and you think, oh, yeah. he really screwed up Star Wars, but Star Wars was beautiful to look at. Yeah, right? like sure. so, he's not without his ability. Yeah, right. Um, but storytelling is not not what he's good at. Yeah. It's just the visuals is what he's really excellent at. So. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to give that get that right out there. I don't know if you're watching anything. I know. You you've been kind of on the uh, hiatus of watching. I don't watch a lot of like regular stuff. I just watched Temple of Doom yesterday. Yeah, sweet. Um, hadn't seen that one in a while, and it. Uh, I, I mean, those are original screenplays, so we we may or may not ever get around to covering those. There <sighs> yeah. are some books of Indiana Jones adventures, like other other than they're not necessarily novelizations. They're like independent stories. Okay. Maybe we'll do one of those. We They're probably to, pretty just, fun. Just to give us a chance to talk about yeah. Jones. Um, so uh, Indiana Jones is a great character. And I, I have decided that I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is the best of the Indiana Jones movies. <sighs> That's tough. But I like Temple of Doom a lot. I think yeah. that before Crystal Skull, it was thought of as kind of the lesser of them. But I really like his arc in it. A lot of people don't realize that Temple of Doom is a prequel. It's a prequel. Yeah. yeah. If you and you, it's, no attention is really called to that. Apparently, the reason they did that is because they were trying to not have Nazis be the bad guys again, right. and so they kind of wanted to to move back in time to where they were. You know, he, he would not have been running into them, especially in India. They're not really present there at that sure. time. So, um, 
uh, but I really like his arc in that one. So in in Raiders of the Lost Ark, no pun intended, his his character arc is essentially um, it's a it's like a trial by fire. Where is he going to descend to the level of his adversary Belloc? In uh, like is is he going to become like him? Is he going to sort of become a filthy traitor rather than a person who pursues history for its own sake? Right. Um, there are some, there's some flavoring of skepticism in it where he's, he's not, he doesn't really buy into the Ark's power, which is much more strongly shown in Temple of Doom where, um, his major arc is none, none of this stuff is real. It's just good luck rocks. We're right. just looking for good luck rocks. And then, you know, he's confronted with all these overwhelming proofs of supernatural power. Um, and he has to to kind of confront that there were some missed opportunities in the movie. I think the, the female in the movie needed an arc and didn't get one. one. She would have, I I can, I I know exactly what it should have been because her character is very conceited and self-absorbed and kind of a sort of the opposite of the, uh, the love interest from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and and very, very much can't fend for herself, uh, used to parties and stuff like that. So, She needed to be the one who motivates Indiana Jones to save the children in the mine rather than him just deciding to, because that would have been a good opportunity for her to have grown to care about someone other than herself. Herself, yeah. They just missed that chance. They didn't really do anything with her. It's probably because she wasn't a good actress. Um, I mean, I guess she was okay. But anyway, that's what I've been watching. Sure. So we got got off on a little tangent there. but That's good. Uh, Reading anything? Yeah. I just, uh, I'm in the middle of... um, well, I'm towards the end now of a biography of General Israel Putnam, who was a Revolutionary War general. Okay. And he is the man that our county, Putnam County, Tennessee, is named after. Oh, wow. Um, he's a guy that I knew a little bit about. There's some confusion about who—he fought at Bunker Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some confusion about who said the words, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. He's one of the two contenders for who might have said that. Gotcha. Um that was not mentioned in this biography, though, which was written by a contemporary. So this is an old, this is an old, um, it's a reprint of an old version of Awesome. His. So, um, but it's really interesting. He had a great, interesting life. He was, uh, he was kind of an action hero in, in yeah. the French and Indian War and a farmer during times of peace and generally a likable. He's presented by a very friendly biographer here. Okay. I think they were personal friends. And so... Um, but it's been it's made for an interesting read. The fact that it was written by a guy, and I think this was written circa seventeen ninety okay. or so. So this is uh, it's kind of like stepping back in time a little yeah. bit, not just in the story, but in the method of in writing. In the method how of writing, yeah, the how language, it, yeah. the syntax, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I, I actually probably could use some suggestions on some nonfiction. Um, I've been I've been kind of bogged down in school reading right now, and just started actually putting together. Uh, some commentary on Romans. So we're, we're reading the book of Romans. And so... Uh, How long have you been in Romans? Uh, we just started. Oh, okay. Yeah, it just started. Maybe, um, I, maybe I just talked to you about Romans because I, I feel like we were talking about that recently. Yeah, I was probably probably in setup. Uh, but oh. I just wrote a bit of a commentary on Romans chapter one. Okay. And so uh, having fun talking to kids about hermeneutics and mm. the importance of understanding the genre of the book of the Bible. And this reading. is with what age? This is eighth grade. Okay. So yeah. we're talking about 13, 14. Yeah. 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 And, uh, Romans. Wow. Yeah. It's, 
It's not an easy task, but it's one I enjoy. So. I'm glad you started them easy. Yeah. Uh, I always like to thank Nick for giving me that little golden chestnut. Well, that is uh, – Romans is there because you guys do the Reformation, right? Right, right. So that's well, – I guess that's kind of at the end of the year. But, to, um, yeah, sure. But, yeah, that's the – I mean, Romans is what opened a lot of people's eyes. Right. So, yeah, they'll have context. Yeah, it's – I'm looking forward to getting to that so mm-hmm. that they can see, oh, you know. Yeah, that's the just why. The just shall live by faith. Yeah. Uh, so we're I'm excited about it. But, anyway, that's what, that's what I've been – Keeping my keep myself busy with so. cool. Well, you can't go wrong with the Bible when you, yeah. we get to the "What are you reading?" thing. So <laughs> I guess that should probably be like oh, like always <laughs> that, and then sometimes other things with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's go ahead and jump into. I might have a suggestion for a nonfiction to read. Oh yeah, hit me. I'm gonna wait till the end. Oh okay. Because maybe it might be a good suggestion for another episode. Maybe the next one. We'll uh, see. Okay. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Uh, you want to do Should It Have Been a Book or Movie next? Uh, yeah. So you got one for us tonight. I do. Should It Have Been a Book or a Movie? And we're doing tonight, which one of those? We're going to do Should It Have Been a Movie. Okay. And I'm going to go with a short story okay. by Ursula Le Guin. Okay. And I looked it up. So that's how she says to pronounce her Le name. Guin. Okay. Le Guin. I've heard um, Le Guin Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's People try to pronounce it French. Yeah. But it's actually in her own words. It might be it's, like it's, Welsh or it's something. Welsh. It's yeah. Breton. Yeah. Um, originally Welsh. So... Uh, it is Le Guin, uh, and she has a short story titled The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. She is, by the way, probably the queen of science fiction. Yeah. I think she's um, generally lauded as such. Yeah. Um, um, she's certainly she's certainly going to be your top three female sci-fi fantasy writers. Yeah. Um, I can think of a couple that are fantasy that are probably in the same league, but um, not many. Not many. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's widely lauded mm-hmm. as such. And she, I thought it would be fitting since we're doing sci-fi tonight, and... Mm-hmm. She uh, has a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Okay. It's very not science fiction. Okay. Um, does have some fantasy elements, but mm-hmm. not a whole lot. It's an interesting story. It's an inter- interesting short story. The basic premise is the omniscient narrator takes us into a utopian society that's sort of tucked away into the hills of some foreign country. You're not really... It's intentionally very vague. Okay. And um, it's sort of this Shangri-La... Uh-huh. Atlantis kind of situation where okay. it's you know not not a known, utopia a utopia that's mm-hmm. sequestered away okay. right and it, there's a hint of almost like it's magically hidden okay. like uh, I'm reminded of the the line from Pirates of the Caribbean it can't be found except by those who already know where it is uh-huh. um, it's got kind of that kind of mystic mm-hmm. uh, hiddenness to it and when we descend upon Omalos the city. Uh, it is unfurled before us with great descriptive language, mm-hmm. and it is this utopian society that's full of, um, you know, uh, everybody has everything they want. Um, it's got uh, all every pleasure is available to you. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no negative consequences for the choices you make. Uh, we descend upon a parade. The city is in, in excessive festive mood, but you also get the idea that this is also kind of a commonplace thing, mm-hmm. and nobody works, and everybody's happy. Yeah, um, And it's great. And you're kind of chugging along in this little short story, and you're wondering, why am I reading this? Mm. And as, It doesn't sound compelling as a story yet. Right? As the story continues, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we get these hints from the narrator that there are uh, there's something not quite right. right? Okay. And essentially, what we find out is hidden in one of the basements of one of the houses in the city of Omelas, there is a young 
child. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know the gender of the child. We don't know uh, the exact age of the child because the child is so maligned, so mm-hmm. mistreated, so uh, malnourished. All the mouths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been completely... Um, it's It's become... Um, it's, it's dumb and stupid, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, is incapable of even the most basic forms of communication. It lives in its own waste. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just the most abysmal kind of existence that any human could, could engage in. And, uh, what you find out is that the magic of Omelas is dependent on this, law the sort of supernatural law Mm -hmm. that if the child is to be given even the slightest showing of kindness Mm -hmm. the the slightest hint of any kind of help encouragement even a kind look Mm -hmm. the magic of the utopia will break okay and all of the all of the beauty all of the pleasure all of the um utopian-esqueness of Mm -hmm. the place will dissipate Omelas yeah. itself may even cease to exist. Okay. In fact, it would in everything but name. And so um, it's just sort of this fact. And, um, of course, by the end of the story, the, the story is properly called The Ones Who Walk Away. Mm-hmm. Because they, uh, the, as people learn this truth, they, they can't live with it and they, yeah. and they leave. Um, it's a really provocative story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very short. Um, it's First of all, it's written well. Very The description in it is beautiful. Um, and the, the magic is, is captivating. Um, and, and on the surface, I think people would be tempted to see it as just a commentary on, um, the evils of, uh, overly wealthy, powerful nation, not taking care of the least of these. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly there are some, maybe some, some interpretations where you could go in that direction, but I think that's actually not the point. Mm Mm-hmm. I think what what Ursula Le Guin uh, is trying to drive at is um, a utilitarian, a utilitarianism, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, do the needs of the many, the many yeah. outweigh the needs mm-hmm. of the few, right? And uh, what's really interesting is the people walk away because they can't handle the knowledge mm-hmm. that this child is suffering for their happiness. Yeah, but they also don't do anything they for the child help, yeah. they don't they don't kick the door down they don't mm-hmm. remove the child right because they they don't want to be held responsible for breaking the magic and yeah. ruining the utopia and so a, a, the utilitarian themes mm-hmm. in it i just find to be very interesting very compelling she doesn't really give us her position which mm-hmm. i always think is you know that's hard it, to do it's hard to do mm-hmm. that yeah I, I wouldn't say it's inherently virtuous yeah because sometimes that's a good thing uh, to give us your position but it's difficult to to leave a story so open-ended mm-hmm. and so uh, i would love to see it made into a film maybe a sh- maybe a really well done short film mm-hmm. or you, you'd have to do some um you'd have to do some some serious creative liberties had to take yeah. some serious creative liberties to kind of flush it out into a full feature length film mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of great stuff there and i think our culture today needs to be confronted with Utilitarianism, number one. Mm-hmm. The needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. We become a society that's that's fallen into what Orwell, you know, very famously called groupthink. Mm-hmm. Right? We've got um, all kinds of uh, Orwellian type thinking going on in our culture. That's probably not great. Fahrenheit four fifty one, of course. C.S. Lewis that he's strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think being confronted with individuals and the needs of the individual, individual personal liberty. Right, like those kinds of things are in play in this short story. But also another thing that's interesting 
that I would like to from to flesh out from a Christian worldview or, or see fleshed out from a Christian worldview in a movie is our conception of utopia. You know, mm-hmm. she describes it as a very hedonistic yeah. um, place, mm-hmm. right? You Every pleasure is available to you and there's no negative consequences for your actions. Um, as a Christian, we would deny this, right? Yeah. And in and, and a very, uh, in the sense that, you know, pleasure absent from the higher authority of Christ is no pleasure at all. Yeah. Right. The, it's the, really the, slavery. The, right. Yeah. Right. It's really slavery. Mm-hmm. The joy of heaven. There's something I can't, now it's escaping me. They, they But they have um, a spice. It's kind of like the spice from, oh, okay. from Dune. Mm-hmm. It's like a drug that yeah. they can, It's I think it's called scoosh or something, something like that. Um, but it's, you know, it's a drug that they can take with mm-hmm. no consequences. Um, this was written in 1973. Okay. Um, so, you know, take that as you will. Um, but, uh, you know, we know that the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, you know, the Bible says every tear will be wiped away, right? There'll be no, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And so it's not that we don't mm-hmm. look forward to sort of a, an existence without the pain and suffering that we know now, mm-hmm. but the ultimate joy of heaven is not that we won't cry. Yeah. It's that we will be in fellowship, perfect fellowship with our king. Yeah. Right. And and that's totally absent from Omalos. There is no monarch. There mm-hmm. is no in fact it talks about like there's really no government because everybody's just happy. Yeah. Um and so it, it really is a a um materialist, uh worldviewed centered utopian picture. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that um false heaven mm-hmm. is what drives a lot of the negative stuff in our society. Yeah. And if people could be confronted with it in a story and be told, hey, if you want this, it comes at the cost of this child, mm-hmm. um, I think it would it would be really good for us. I think it would, it would yeah. create a lot of dialogue. So yeah. one to walk with Or, I mean, just the idea of someone must pay a price. Right. And, you know, as Christians, we have an answer to that question, right? Sure. So, and, so to continue with that, if you want to see that fleshed out more, you need to read Brave New World. Brave New World, sure. Brave New World doesn't have the element of the child, but they do have the hedonistic society with no negative consequences. And the lack of negative consequences is ultimately what the independent thinking people want to break free from. There's a great scene at the end of that where um, I cannot remember the character's name, but he's you know, a double, an alpha double plus, or he's one of the smartest people that they have um, in their breeding program. And he has come to the conclusion that he no longer wants to be a part of their society. And he's like, are you, are you asking me for freedom to have pain? And he's like, yes, I am. He's like, fine, but we're going to send you away to a colony for people who like you, who have just, you know, declined to participate in society the way we have organized it. Where do you want to go? And he's like, well, send me somewhere that's got bad weather because I want to you know, I want to feel basically. Sure. sure. And, uh, yeah. So that's, uh, just the idea that there will never be any negative consequences. And I don't know, you're looking at injustice, right? This child doesn't deserve to be treated right. this way. Um, at what cost? Right. Yeah. U- utopia. Would, it, would it be the same if there was a man who, who came and said, I am willing to have this mm-hmm. done to me to right. save everyone else. Sure. That would be different. That would, right? Yeah. So, 
Yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot there yeah. and there's, I think there's a lot of, and, and, and the ones who walk away from Omelas is, is not like some obscure mm-hmm. short. St- I mean, it's, it's widely known, yeah. widely read. I mean, this isn't like, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not blowing the dust off of something sure. that no one's ever looked at. And so maybe there's good reason why it's never been turned into a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but film student, if you're out there looking yeah. for something to lure, lure uh, TV. Yeah. We're looking at you. We're looking at you, Marcus. <laughs> So anyway, once a walk away from Omelas, and yeah. to our to our listening audience, go read it. I mean, it's a short yeah. story, but it's good. Can you find really it online? Good. Yeah, you can. You can get a PDF. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's in the public domain. I don't know of any printed cop, uh, you know, published copies. There's but, probably some. There's probably like our collected works. Right. Um, I don't know, but I I'm sure, I'm sure somebody has thrown thrown it into something or a, or an anthology of sci-fi short stories. There's a couple of really good ones of those. Yeah. All right. Next up. We got storytelling 101. Yes, you're also handling that tonight. Yeah, I'm excited. And this is going to be especially relevant to what we're what we're covering. It um, is as it we is. get down to it. Um, so we'll probably call back to it when we get when we get into talking about our our story of choice tonight. Yeah, there's a there's a controlled chaos to our to our madness here. So yeah. hopefully this hopefully this is helpful not just for our storytellers out there, but for our discussion tonight of mm-hmm. the thing. Um, but the concept I want to talk about in storytelling tonight is called is commonly referred to by its Latin term, uh-huh. medius res. Okay. Which uh, literally translates to the middle of things or in right. the middle of things. Um, but it is a term that is used to indicate uh, when a story begins. Right. Uh, and the common practice of storytelling uh, in the West for most of its conception uh, has been the use of the literary device to start the story in the middle. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't start at the very beginning. Um, why do this? It creates intrigue. It creates uh, opportunity for uh characters to dialogue and to have something to dialogue about mm-hmm. you you do a slow reveal that builds a world because a lot of times the the moment that you're dropped in on is action-packed yeah and it may not necessarily be violent but it's things are happening sure and you want to know how they got to this point where they're going next sure a really just quick example before i get into like the history and where it comes from and why we appreciate it so much um i'm actually watching rewatching for myself and from for my wife it's her first time uh watching daredevil the okay, netflix the show. tv show on yeah. That, yeah and it uh the second episode the first episode ends with him sort of masking up and getting ready to go fight and the second episode begins with him in a dumpster and he's yeah. very badly beaten mm-hmm. uh to the point of death and so, and you're kind of led to believe pretty quickly like from the time the first one ended to the time this one begins is not a long time. Mm-hmm. So that fight clearly didn't go well, yeah. but you don't have any details. You're not really sure what's going on. And then throughout the episode, you get dialogue. But you want to know, you want to know yeah. you're hooked, you're intrigued and you want to know, you know, is he going to make it? Is he not? Um, and so, you know, shows and movies and books have been using this concept for millennia. I yeah. mean, it, it, you know, obviously not movies, but you know, stories have been, storytellers have been using this concept for millennia. Well, the, I don't want to steal any of your thunder, but no, all no. the great epic poems. Right. Pretty much. Right. Are, are this way. In fact, that's where it comes from. So that mm-hmm. the term "medius res" was actually first used uh, by Horace, the okay. l- the poet from Rome, um, and he used it in his Poetica. Mm-hmm. Right, and he was talking about Homer. Yeah, um, and why one of the reasons why Homer is uh, even in the time of ancient Rome being lauded as the greatest, you know, spinner of yarn mm-hmm. that ever that ever wrote uh, is that he didn't. Begin with the egg, so ab owo, uh-huh. um, with the egg, or in the beginning, uh, right? Yeah, which and, and that's yeah. a reference to mm-hmm. um, 
um, Helen of Troy's conception, mm-hmm. right? So from the myth. Um, but he doesn't, Homer doesn't start there. He mm-hmm. begins Medius Res yeah. in the middle of things, which is why the term is Latin and mm-hmm. not Greek, right. even though it's typically used to refer to the um, to Homer's epics. Yeah. Uh, so it was a bunch of Roman scholars that yeah. came up with the, it was a bunch of literary, literary guys. Right, yeah. that were talking about Homer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Horace is the one who kind of first coined the term, and, and since then it's been, it's been used in literature classrooms for, you know, forever yeah um and so the all of the great epics mm-hmm. as you said begin this way yeah. it's sort of become a, a time-honored tradition um that's been passed down we first get it from homer yeah um he's he's our original poet and uh, uh virgil did this in the aeneid dante mm-hmm. does this um in the uh, in the inferno um milton does this in paradise lost mm-hmm. um it, it is a a, a time-honored tradition that that the greatest stories that exist in the Western canon from a cultural, socio-cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could make an argument that the epic poems are that. Um, yeah. Some some might pick a fight with me, but I think they no, lose. I, I think I would agree with you. There yeah. may be somebody out there who doesn't, but if you have not read those, read you them. need to yeah. you need to find a, a good English translation that's readable to you, and you need to undo it. Yeah, and uh, those stories. Um, you know, the, the, they're the ones that have passed on this tradition to us. Mm. And it, it actually, I think, you know, it's it's kind of cheesy, but like when it happens in a TV show or, you know, something like Daredevil, which is not the Odyssey. Right. right? It's not yeah. the Iliad. It's not Paradise Lost. It still is like, it's nice to see Homer still kind of, mm-hmm. still kind of peeking through, right? It's yeah. become part of our cultural DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one, I think, you know, storytellers, if you're going to do it, you should know where it comes from mm-hmm. and why it matters. Um, but then also too, it can be used to great effect yeah. and there's a reason why it's stuck around so long. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really simple device, um, but it, it's, uh, it's an effective one. Um, it, it, it has special significance for us because, uh, Medius Rest was actually one of the things that Campbell struggled with. And so mm-hmm. as we, as we dive into our, into our, uh, topic today, we'll, we'll talk about that, but yeah, Medius Rest, begin yeah. your story in the middle of things. Yeah. And perhaps that will give your story the intrigue. I cannot remember who, who I heard say it, but it was an author. Uh, and you could probably Google this phrase or something similar and find out who it is. But uh, they said, if you're having a hard time getting your story going, it's probably because you started too soon. Yeah. I think and it was Campbell. To, maybe it was. Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah, he I had think it that. was Campbell. He might've said that to one of his guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Campbell was a mentor he was a, to a lot of guys. He was an editor mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. his, well, we're, we're yeah. probably getting ahead of ourselves now. Yeah, we are. Are you done with that one? Yeah, I feel, I feel, I think we've covered, unless you have anything you want to add. Nope, nope, I like that. That's good. Yeah. All right, so now we're moving on to the, the meat of the of the night. Tonight we're going to be talking about a science fiction novella classic, which has become a movie that I think, I don't know, classic might be a too strong a term. You know, honestly, it was a box office flop. It was. Um, I think that age has been kind to it and that a lot of people have gone back and looked at it. So we were talking tonight about John Campbell Jr.'s, which by the way, correction, I've referred to him as Joseph Campbell Jr. in past episodes. It's John Campbell Jr. Um, Uh, Joseph Campbell is here with a thousand faces. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's right. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. Maybe I'm getting that name. He writes about mythology. Maybe that's what I had in mind. (laughs) Anywho, John Campbell's uh, Who Goes There was the original story. And the movie adaptation, and tonight we're going to specifically be talking about John Carpenter's 1982, The Thing. Yes, we are. 
because it's grand. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. So, the, so here we are. We're in the midst of things. So let's talk a little bit about the context here. We've got John Campbell Jr. John Campbell was one of these golden age sci-fi writers who wanted to be a scientist. He couldn't hack it. Right. Not because of the science, but because of the German. German. <laughs> Which was surprising. So in 1930s, all of the best scientists were Germans. So right. the language of international scholarship was German. If you wanted to publish a paper that you wanted to be taken seriously, you needed to be able to read the German science. You may I don't necessarily think you had to publish in German, but you had to know German well enough. German was the language of science. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so when he was uh, attempting to get his degree, he he never quite could get that done. In the meantime, to pay his bills, he launched um, Astounding Magazine, and it became uh, one of the greatest incubators for science fiction writing probably ever. Maybe the single best one. It's probably the. It's definitely the flagship. <clears throat> yeah. You know. I mean, you could probably look at a publisher like. Like Ban Science Fiction or Del Rey or somebody like that that um, uh, did did a lot of publishing work, but this guy was uh, uh, always wanting to be a scientist. His love of science comes through his writings, yeah, especially sure. in this one here. We'll talk about that. Um, and in the meantime, he was basically running this magazine, buying stories from guys. A lot of the guys that he bought stories from, he became friends with. We talked about Heinlein, Hubbard, Asimov, right. several others that came later. Um, so, um, so that's that's John Campbell Jr. So he he did he only wrote one real novel. Um, th- this is the closest thing he had to a novel. He he originally published it as a novella and called Who Goes There, mm-hmm. and then through some pretty impressive work, some research work by Alec Navala Lee. Yes. Um, an extended version of it was located in his personal things after yeah. he died. Um, I, I think he was given permission to look through his stuff because he was doing a biography of him. It was in a it was in a <clears throat> library in Harvard. Yeah, he and, donated his stuff to a library. Right. Um. And and Alec found it because he was going through like, I mean, just copious amounts of letters. Things. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. just it, there was a one reference to it, mm-hmm. and he just he tracked it down. Yeah. So that has been published now. Yeah. Um, we have a copy of both here sitting on the table. Wildside Publishing has John Campbell Jr.'s Frozen Hell, which has really horrific artwork on the cover. Yeah. And then we have kind of some more bland but pretty effective art cover um, on Who Goes There, published by some publishing company that uses a red rocket as their logo and didn't bother to print their name on the side of the book. So... Um, <laughs> Either one is good. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit of the di- the differences between the two sure. uh, written versions, sure. and then compare to the movie. Yeah. So we have a we have a good example here of a film which really, uh, with some notable exceptions, followed the the plot of the book pretty yeah. pretty closely. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, and it, this is a very filmable book. Um, before we jump into that, you want to talk about how the two versions sort of came about? Why why are there two ver- why are there two versions of this story? From Campbell himself. Uh, well, so back to media res, right? right. Um, the the big the, the big difference between the two versions is that one of them covers about uh, more about how they located the alien creature that they find and extracted it and the mishaps that they have happen. Um, he handles all that in much less text in Who Goes There? Yeah, through some expository dialogue, mm-hmm. which is a little slow, but. Um, 
you know, in a book, it, it really amounts to the same thing because sure. you're reading it either way. Um, but uh, Frozen Hill has about 50 extra pages or so. It's not a huge add-on. Um, but besides that beginning chunk and then a couple of tweaks at the outset of what would be Frozen Hell, everything from from then on is the same. Is the same. Uh, it has the same much. ending. There's, there's, there's nothing terribly drastically different about right. it. If you're a completionist, you may want both. Um, I got a copy of Frozen Hell after I read Alec Navala Lee's Astounding, uh, the book, which is a biography of a couple of different guys, but Campbell's probably the main one. And uh, he he talked about it in there. And so I already had a copy of who goes there and I was like, Oh, I'm going to see what the longer one is. So sure. I got, got that. And, um, Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so for the, for the listening audience and mm-hmm. the viewing audience, um, I have never read who goes there. Uh-huh. I've only read frozen hell and then watched the thing. So I'm really, uh, really excited about kind of talking about, so we've really got three, we've kind of got three things going yeah, on here, right? Yeah. We've got the John Carpenter's film, We've got Campbell's original mm-hmm. Frozen Hell, and then his revision, which is the one yeah. that actually got published in his own time. Mm-hmm. Who goes there? And then Frozen Hell was found, you know, decades yeah, later, a little bit later. So uh, he, he was he struggled with the beginning of it. Yeah, um, like we said before, Campbell's a guy who loved his science, and he wanted to spend time discussing that in his writing. So he talks a lot about now. Remember, this is the 1930s, so technology is way different. Sure. They were using steam-powered tractors and. Things like that. It's it's difficult to visualize because 1930s Antarctic expedition isn't something for which I have a ready like frame of reference. Right. Um, but they had aircraft, they had uh, tractors, they had uh, gas powered generators. So sure. there are um, there are things that we get. There are some things that are, that would have been very different. But anyway, they basically. You want me to give you the the well? You read Frozen Hell, yeah. So the difference. I'll tell you what, let's do a plot synopsis yeah. of Frozen Hell, yeah. and I'll tell you where Who Goes There starts. Okay, let's do that. So I'll, I'll take Frozen Hell, then. Okay. So the, we open up on the Antarctic tundra, mm-hmm. and um, an expedition um, set in the 1930s, uh, which, would be, which would be contemporary for mm-hmm. Campbell, uh, is out there. And they're doing, there's, there's a gr- large group um, of, about, of almost 40 guys, uh, I think 37 total, and uh, but they're so they're all sort of specialized in different areas. So there's some meteorologists. There's mm-hmm. some uh, magneticists. I yeah. don't think that's a word, but they're studying magne- yeah, magnetic. They're there to study the polar they're studying, stuff. Yeah, polar stuff um, and uh, a I mean, couple the stuff of other that you would think of. Geologists. Geologists. There's uh, yeah. biologists there. Right, there's right. one medical doctor there Who's, who I, who seems to be there more for the team yeah, i think than actually um, to study anything but anyway and then there's some support staff that right, are like right. this guy's in charge of sled dogs Clark, this yeah, guy's yeah. in charge of right. they have livestock there to milk cows and stuff like that for food so they don't get resupplied regularly enough that they can just eat everything out of the box and right. somebody shows up with a new box they have to kind of cultivate some food there so sure there's there's some support staff not all of these people are named not all their jobs are known but yeah it's it's a bustling little miniature there's like a community. yeah it's, it's a little community a little a little commune out there in the in the antarctic as far as we know it's all men right um Which, actually interesting note um on the editing one of the things the when they were telling campbell to shorten it mm-hmm. um the other thing they were told him was, it, you know, put a female in there. Yeah, and I love this. He said, "There would." The, I tried. Like he was, he was not against it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sure, I'll put a female in there. But he said every time I tried to work a female in there, it just didn't make sense. 
yeah. because these they're all out in this like in the harshest living conditions yeah. with no privacy with no privacy they repeatedly say that yeah no um, privacy yeah that's a that was a big they part. all they have they're having to share three and four guys to a room right um, it, it he was like it just makes no sense yeah. right and in the uh, 1930s there's sure. no way that it would have been considered proper right for them to put a lady out a lady there out with there. all those guys, well, or it, several even. It so. just, I don't know, I kind of thought, I kind of thought, man, we've come a, we've come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> from, well, so from, I, from I have that. a note about that, too. In, um, in the end of this copy of The Thing, there is a brief uh, screenplay treatment um, written by William Nolan, who wrote Logan's Run um, and some, a couple of other things. Okay, okay. Uh, and he has... Uh, it sounds like it would have been horrible. It yeah. sounds like a really bad movie. But one of the problems with it is that it's full of love triangles. It's uh, basically half men and half women. And uh, it's just like, this is all just a distraction sure, from, from the, the real threat and like what like the where the real story is. So anyway. Yeah, credit, to, Cam- credit to Campbell for not... You know, sometimes... Mm-hmm. Sometimes the best advice is no is no good, right? Like sure, these are yeah. guys who are in the field. They're his editors. They're telling him, "Hey, if you want this thing published, you got to put a girl in there." And I, I agree with Campbell. It, it just wouldn't work. And so, yeah. you know, sometimes sometimes it would stand out. It was odd, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, back to the story. So uh, all these guys are there, and uh, what 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 we start to learn is that the guys who are studying the poles uh, are trying to focus on this anomaly that they can't really quite explain, but there's some magnetic interference that's acting almost as a pseudo pole. Yeah. Um, and so they go out uh, into this uh, wasteland to try and discover what's causing this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and through that expedition, they discover yeah. a large uh, downed craft that they think may be a submarine. Um, it looks like a, like a torpedo, like a or torpedo, something, yeah, yeah, like massive cylinder, or like a Flash kind of, Gordon rocket. Yeah, like that's pointy, the image I kind of yeah. have in my head is like that 1930s, mm-hmm. you know, Flash Little or like fins, like those like yeah. old Superman cartoons, like Marvin the know? Martians rocket, right? <laughs> yeah, and so um, anyway, they find this thing, and actually, as they're digging to get down to it, um, they accidentally, uh, as they're digging, cut into uh, a an alien right yeah. the, this this Some body sort of thing um, they can tell it's an, an organism they can tell it's organic they accidentally bury an ice axe in his yeah, forehead in his forehead and uh they realize oh no what have we done and um they go to it's uh, not conscious yeah it's, it's, frozen. it's, it's clearly yeah. frozen it's you know it's it's dead uh so they think and so uh they they pull it out of the ice um and they're and they're you know, then they begin to say, wow, this is the find of the century. We yeah. need to do more. And through their techniques of trying to unbury this craft, mm-hmm. they accidentally blow it up. Yeah, turns out it was made out of it magnesium. Was made out of magnesium, <laughs> and they so they 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 send a you know they nuke it. They nuke it basically, <laughs> uh, which ends up you know destroying equipment. Yeah, and, and they think there were other aliens down there. That right, they also incinerate. That they also yeah. destroy it. So now all they have of the the find of the century yeah. is this body, this one organism, and yeah. so they drag it back to their main camp, which doesn't sound important. But then you think to yourself, why wouldn't they just drown this thing in acid immediately? Well. They don't, it's a scarce resource now. They've right. got a reason to think it's worth a little risk to hold on to, to hold this on to. alien monster creature that we think is dead. 
And, and they make mention of that. They, yeah, they say like, there's conversation. There's conversation about, about like, why I can't believe we blew that thing up. The secrets we could have learned. Mm-hmm. Atomic power, which I know you want to talk about yeah. um, later, uh, is a is a big thing. Yeah, um, this is, is a, pre-atomic yeah, power. Pre-atomic Although it's power. very like this is the 1930s, so the atom- atomic theory is alive and well. Right. And everybody knew it was coming. Right. And a lot of these, well, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get, yeah, I know you want to talk about that. So they blow the ship up. They bring the body back. And in, uh, at the end of that, um, as, they're, as they're coming back to the main camp, it's sort of alluded that the people who are in close proximity to the body of this mm. downed creature um, are experiencing some weird dreams, yeah. some um, even some waking hallucinations that... Some bizarre thoughts some bizarre, that are intruding in. Yeah, or yeah. some bizarre thoughts. Um, uh, more on, remind me to come back to that when we do analysis. Yeah. So uh, the body comes back. Uh, they begin the thawing out process. And okay, this is where uh, Who Goes There starts. Okay. Who Goes There starts in the mess hall with the body on the table. That's amazing. And uh, they are the team that found it is basically explains everything you just said to the team that was not with them when they located it. Gotcha. They do it in a, in a couple of pages. In a couple of pages. And so now they're like, "What do we do with this stupid thing?" Right. Um, and they're they're having a debate over it. Everybody's got their own agenda. Some guys are like, "Get rid of it." Some guys are like, "Stick it out in the ice, and we'll take it back with us." Um, the guy that wants to melt it is our biologist, yes, whose name is Blair. Blair. I was yeah. always want to. I get him and Copper confused. Sure. Um, Copper's the doctor. Right. Blair is the biologist. So Blair wants to study it. Um, they're and, concerned that it could have an ill, like a disease. They're concerned, you know, initially that there, there's not much chance that it's alive. It's sure. very unlikely because it's a higher life form and it's, you know, it's frozen. It's, it's not a fish. Yeah. It's not anything less it, than it would, a fish. It would be dead. Even it's if dead. its cells technically could be revived, the creature itself would not, would not be. survive. Right. Like it would just be a lifeless husk and and there's you know to blair's point right a lot to be gained in even yeah. understanding mm-hmm. the biology of the creature the ecology of mm-hmm. uh where it comes from mm-hmm. right there's just a lot of yeah. uh, they knew uh, nothing about it they i mean for all they knew it was it was native to earth right i mean that, I, think, just, I think someone uh, even yeah. mentions that like yeah. maybe it came just from like deep you know, deep in the earth. Uh, but but what Campbell does really well is in the description and in the way the characters talk about it, they always refer to it as a thing from hell. Yeah. Right? It's very mm-hmm. hellish. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a hateful look it, on yes, its face. It's just, yeah. Um, and only one character, which I think is Blair, is like, you don't have any right to judge the emotional content of right. its facial expressions. Because right. it's clearly, it's, for, I mean, for all we know, it could be lovely, you know, like. This it, could be how it This could be cute love. as far right. as we know. Right. And they're like, nah. Nah, man. <laughs> that thing is evil. <laughs> which I think is a great. Let's finish the plots. Yeah, yeah. Plots analysis. So. Important to get distracted. So the, uh, the thing, uh, which I think we're okay to call that now. Yeah, the we thing, can call it the thing. The thing. Um, Animates comes alive yeah. through the thawing process. Yeah, they melt it down, um, and uh, there is uh, a scene in the book where uh, there's some hullabaloo at. Oh gosh, I said I was going to remember. Now I've forgotten. What do they call where all the dogs are? It's like Dog Village. I or think it's Dogtown. Dogtown, yeah. yeah, something like that. It's uh, the names are great. They have little names for the the, for the different, different areas spots. They have yeah. Dogtown. They have the mess hall. They have. There's like the cos- uh, cos- cosmos cosmos house. house. Yeah, that's where the that's where they study the aurora right. phenomenon and, and stuff like that. Study like yeah. yeah. So anyway, so there's a there's a hullabaloo and um, this this thing is is in the process of 
essentially assimilating into a dog. They don't yeah. know that yet. Um, what they know is that the creature's gotten out, it's gotten loose, um, and it's eating a dog. And so they and the dogs are fighting it. The dog, yes, it's it's a great scene where mm-hmm. like the dogs have become you know feral beasts yeah. and they're they're ripping into it and uh, which matters later. Yeah, and um, the uh, McCready. Who's, yes. who we haven't talked about yet, but he's mm-hmm. he's the closest thing we get to a main character. He's our hero. He's yeah. our, he's definitely our guy. He's sort of a Viking uh, type. He's a man of action. Um, he's a meteorologist. He, yes, um, in the book, he's a meteorologist. Yeah, and uh, but he's he, everybody here comes across. You can tell Campbell's a little biased because he you know he wants his scientists to be action heroes also. Sure, and so he writes them that way. Um, they're not flawless, but they're all like jacked. Well, yeah. Know, so in the descriptions, and like they're and all like holding. I, he always describes them holding like these ice axes and things so you can't get the image of like beowulf out of your head right like mccready is beowulf Mm -hmm. and um copper and gary they're like they're all just like like norse men like uh, thor right like or gi joe or something like that that. they're all just very they're they're described to us and i think the only one who's described as sort of imperfect physically is blair who i think is a little overweight and bald yeah and that's about the closest and that's the closest you get to like not jacked yeah. anyway so they um they come with guns they come someone has a gun um someone has an axe um and they quickly realize that like these weapons are not effective yeah. and uh i think it's actually blair um or no barclay it's barclay uh-huh. has a fire extinguisher mm-hmm. and he's able to use that to like sort of disorient the beast yeah and mccready calls out to them he's got a he's got a flamethrower mm-hmm and or a uh, flame torch and so he's using it to kind of keep the beast at bay and they come with this makeshift i, I don't even know what to call it it's like this electric rod it's kind of like they, a it's kind of like a cattle prod yeah it's a but cattle it's, but it's turned up to fatal right. levels of power they fatal. basically ran a hot wire straight to the generator right into this thing and then when you jab it with both prongs it, it just, just shocks it shocks to it to yeah. death and and melts whatever it touches yeah. i mean it's just yeah. instant death it's like a and it's effective it, it does kill yeah it. and that yeah. that's essentially what they use to to break it down and so they they kill it you know they're like oh my gosh can't believe it and through the uh, autopsy we find out from blair that the this thing was actually in the process of becoming an imitation dog. Yeah, um, this is wh- alarming. Yeah, the, because they don't know how long it's been loose. Right, and they have every reason to believe that it can also imitate a person. Right, they're they make they draw some conclusions which I think are done a little hastily. Yeah. but it's it in the context of the book it works. You don't want them to be like, well, we've got to do research for three months. Right. It does take place over several days. That's it does. one of the that's one of the things that, that does happen. But they basically are like, Well, if it can copy a dog, it can copy a man. And how good would the copy be? Well, we're talking about copying down to the cellular level. In fact, they even go on to say, like, if it copies a cow and it and it has long enough to copy the cow completely. You could drink the cow's milk and it would be fine. And it would be fine. It would just be milk. There'd be right. nothing different about it. And right. it wouldn't make you a thing or anything like that. <clears throat> right. And so they're 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 pretty confident about that. And the way Campbell gets around a lot of research time mm-hmm. is that like the creature accidentally telegraphed its thoughts. It's yeah. uh its thoughts to that's what the dreams were. Yeah. And so the dreams kind of fill in the gap. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a Deus Ex Machina, which is another storytelling yeah, thing we should probably yeah. talk about. Uh but 
Uh, it also is helpful though because it also explains why the thing is such a formidable foe. Yeah. Because if it, it can, can telegraph mind, yeah. thoughts, it can also read. It can also. Mm-hmm. There's you know no reason to think that it can't take it in. Right. Yeah. If I can push thoughts out, I can take thoughts in. And so like, oh, the imitation isn't just gonna look like Terry Gant. Mm-hmm. It's gonna know what Terry Gant knows. It's gonna yeah. right. And so like. Uh, as the as they're kind of figuring this thing out, uh, these these facts out about the thing, they realize there's just no good way to know whether or not somebody mm-hmm. is a, a a creature or not. And this begins the genius of the story, yeah, which is watching this group of thirty plus guys, scientists, as scientists, mm-hmm. men of action, and men of um, uh, the material world. Right? Yeah. They they trust what they can see. Suddenly, they can't trust what they can see, mm-hmm. and that begins the yeah. the, the process. Um, they come up with a blood serum test, mm-hmm. where essentially, if we take human blood and um, cause it to interact with non immune animal blood, mm-hmm. it will react. Yeah. And so they they decide that this is the way that they can test they realize actually no that test isn't going to work well it would have worked except that the two samples they took one of them was polluted with the thing. that's right so that's one right. of the two people or both that contributed samples and so that's dr copper and, and that's gary gary the who's, com- who's the first in, com- in command yeah now speaking of the genius the the, the thing doesn't give itself away yeah, um, right. like right down until like its death is imminent, it will remain hidden. Yes. And they spend some time speculating about that. And they basically just conclude, well, its nature is to remain hidden. Like it doesn't go into combat. That's right. not the way this thing works. It's not like if you corner a bear or something like that, like it's just going to hide yeah. until it just can't. And so they have it narrowed down to just a handful of people and it still doesn't react. It doesn't yes. attack them um, until it just absolutely has, has to. to. So. One of the ways that this deviates from the movie is that there's not a bunch of gory monster attacks, right. which do happen. There's a few of those in the movie, right. um, but the fear is from the paranoia, right? And and the race against time because you know certain numbers of our guys have been taken over by the thing, right? And whoever you want your POV character to be, let's say it's McReady. McReady knows that he's not the thing, but that's it. That's it. He that's doesn't all. know anybody else, right? And uh, they kind of say, well, but there must be more of us than than the thing, or they would just attack us. And they're like, well, we don't know that right. because we've basically guessed wrong about everything else. Right. So it's the the paranoia of the book is where its genius is, right? Yeah. And and then of course causes the reader to ask, well, what would I do in that situation? Mm-hmm. And so that's where Campbell shines. But um, so they they essentially McCready uh, comes up with a secondary test where he basically post um, sort of postulates and is correct that. Uh, a part of the thing behaves independently mm-hmm. from the rest of the thing down to um, the single cell, the, yeah. the molecule, right? It's like, it's like the entity itself is really just one cell. Right. And then they combine to to do what they... And then they reproduce by consuming... Right, by, cons- by consumption. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> the test is if I take just a sample of blood mm-hmm. from a person and 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 try to burn it, try to right? Try to, it, try to injure it in any way, it will react yeah. because it has become... It will defend itself. Yeah, because it has become sort of animalistic, primal, mm-hmm. and it, 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 will try to, it will try to stay alive. And so um, that's the test that, that, that essentially works. And so they have to give 
give blood, he tries to attack it, and then if, if the blood reacts, you know that the donor is a thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and like you said, it's even that's now we're at the end of the story, and even then, as people are giving blood, mm-hmm. knowing that they are things, yeah. they still don't attack until it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, the sort of the final twist is after they've they've developed this test and they've eliminated all of the all of the people that are things, they realize, oh, Dr. Blair, who mm-hmm. was going nutso when yeah. he first figured everything he was, out. He was threatening to kill everyone because yeah. of the paranoia. Because of the paranoia and mm-hmm. stuff. They they locked him in a shack kind of away from the the building and then through the events and all the craziness and they kind of forgot about him. Yeah. And they realized, oh, we, we haven't we never actually tested him. He might be a thing. And they go out to the shack and it turns out he actually was a thing. He was maybe the first thing. That's spoilers. Um, Spoilers. <laughs> Big spoilers. Yeah. Uh, and so he, he was the first thing, and um, he's actually working on um, atomic energy yeah, and anti gravity. He'd been out there for a week. And he built like an atomic like heater because there are creatures that like it warm. He built uh, like a backpack, like sort of like a almost like a jetpack, but it's just anti grav. So if you put it on and then you jump, it'll just kind of suspend you. Right. We, the obvious ploy was for him to get from Antarctica to a populated area, so right. he could so he could yeah copy do whatever all the raw material he needed. Yeah. Um, and and essentially, what you learn is that like man, thirty more minutes and he'd have got out of here, and there'd been nothing we could have done. Yeah, but we got there in time. And mm-hmm. and Campbell does leave it, you know, kind of like wow, close call, but we yeah. did it. Right? And it's like, really kind of a bright call. ending because he the thing left behind all of his atomic right. contraptions that right. he had built. And they're like, oh, and how we can kind of reverse engineer these and and yeah, humanity will be ushered into a glorious utopia. Yeah, so sure, man, a lot of connections here. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's Frozen Hell, and I would say probably the who goes there is probably not yeah. much notable difference there. No, I've, everything from from the the moment where they are in the in the mess room discussing the origin of the creature yeah. is the same, yeah. pretty much. There's a, there may be a few tweaks, but not nothing that I noticed. Do you want to talk about any notable differences plot wise? Between uh, between the books and the film, before we do analysis. All right. Well, so let's get back to Medius Res, right? So we have two examples here. We have one that starts at the beginning, and we have one that starts in the middle of things. And he obviously chose, or somebody obviously chose, to publish the one that started a little later, right? right? Even though it was a shorter story. Um, in the movie, we have a completely different opening sequence. Right. They do not discover the creature. The creature basically discovers them. Right. They uh, the movie opens with uh, this basically the same premise. They are a group of there's not as many. I think there's about fifteen or, yeah, or maybe less like that. Um, of guys that are in an Arctic research station. Very similarly characterized to the books. The ones that are named are are pretty similar. There's there's one or two guys whose names are changed. I think Conant is Windows in the movie. Right, um, which is obviously a like a nickname for right. him. Um, Clark is in both. I'm trying to think of Clark, Gary, McCready, obviously. Yeah. Um, what's the doctor's name in the? Is it? It's there's Blair, who's played by diabetes guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> right, and that's the same. Uh, Wilford um, Brimley plays Blair. Right. Uh, Doctor Copper is the doctor um, right. who gets his arms eaten off. Um. um trying to think who's who's the cook in the i can't remember the cook's name i think they're pretty much the same guy yeah they seem like it yeah. um and then there's uh kurt russell who plays mccready mccready yeah. um it was a great character introduction by the way 
Yeah. Um, so anyway, let's talk about the plot of that one. So, yeah. uh, opens up on that Arctic scene. We, we know that this is a research station that they're isolated. There may be a couple of passing references to like winter's about to start. So the sun is setting, which at Antarctica means it's going to be dark for months. Yeah. Right. And then it'll, you know, summer, it doesn't get dark at all for months. So, um, uh, so they're, they're preparing for that when we are the, the opening credits, the opening titles are interspersed with scenes of a sled dog running through the snow uh, away from pursuit by a helicopter. There's there's a helicopter chasing him, and there's people shooting at him with rifles. They eventually chase them all the way to the the American base. Turns out they're Norwegians. They land the helicopter and try to throw a grenade at the dog, and they kind of botch the throw and blow themselves up. And uh, so one of the one of the Americans gets shot on accident, but. They're like, what the heck was that all about? It's so, almost comical. It is. I, I don't yeah. mean to interrupt your plot, but no. it's almost comical. Um, well, it's so zany. Yeah. Um, where and obviously what they're trying to show is like something Something's really wrong. weird. Yeah. Something like very why wrong. would this? Why would they be chasing a dog right. doing that? Like, what did it? You know, what could it have possibly right. done to deserve that kind of attention? Um, and so they they take the dog in. Um, they have dogs of their own. So like, we'll just put them in the kennel with the rest of them. And uh, they uh, they never really quite understand it. They they decide that they're going to go investigate the Norwegian base and see if they can figure out what the heck is going on. Um, so, meanwhile, the dog is loose in the base, and we see a there's a really great shot mm-hmm. where the dog is, and that dog is maybe the best actor in the movie. Yeah, man. he may be. Um, he they, whoever trained that dog did a great job. But he goes slowly goes into a room, and there's a silhouette on the wall. Uh, where a person turns to notice the dog, and then it kind of cuts away. Yeah. Um, and we, of course, we, the audience, know that there's something off about the dog. You know when you went to see this, you bought tickets to a horror film. You know the dog is weird. Right. Something bad is about to happen in that room, We, but we don't know what. We yet. don't know what. Um, and I, I saw something. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I saw something that said that the person whose silhouette that was is not one of the actors. It's like a just a random crew member. Because they didn't want anyone to know who, who the was. thing was yet. When they were worried, well, if it's somebody who has a really obvious profile, then that'll give it away. That's genius. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, so that was a good call, I think. Um, so we we have the dog go being put into the kennel. And in one of the most monstrously horrific scenes, the dog uh, tries to eat another dog, basically, by digesting it with spraying acid at it and becoming a dog. The art, the rest of the dogs go bananas and start barking and howling at it, and the guys all run in and see this thing mid-transition. Right. And it's a horrible, grotesque nightmare. Um, and they they try to hit it with the flamethrower. Um, the attention to detail on the special effects is something that I like to talk about yeah. when we get around to it. Yeah. I'll just finish with the plot synopsis. So they realize that this dog is not what it seems. They proceed to do... Um, autopsy of it, find out what it is. It's an alien creature. They now think that there may be uh, some of these things amongst the people, but they don't know who it is. Um, and everybody becomes paranoid over time. It becomes apparent that there are some people that are. There's a couple of really super creepy scenes uh, similar to the to the um, book Blair Goes Nuts. Although right. in this one, it's more of a benevolent nuts because right. he immediately goes 
which just happens in the I, book. It happens too. in the book too. Yeah, um, it's, I forgot it's this off part. Scre- it's kind of off screen, quote unquote, off screen in the book where right. he just basically says, "I just broke all the stuff." Right. In the movie, they show him. He takes an axe into the like radio room and smashes all their stuff so that they can't call for help because he realizes immediately his scientific mind is like, if this creature gets into a population center it'll destroy all our well life on and Earth. no in the movie there's there's a very comical we have exposition yeah 6.0 we have to do, uh, we have to mention it because it's okay it's so there this is 1982 right computers are not very good the first computer we see is a chess wizard computer which russell crowe destroys with uh yeah. who did i say russell, russell crowe Crow. <laughs> russell crowe's not in this he was probably like 17 when this was made um so Kurt Russell McCready is playing chess wizard. This is his character introduction, by the yeah. way. And he makes a move and the chess wizard um, checkmates him. And he dumps his, his shot of JB's whiskey and ice into the main, into the, uh, the, hard, into the drive hard drive and breaks it. And so that, you know, that's what they had computers for. <clears throat> so Blair sits down at this computer and types in like, what if alien come to earth? <laughs> And it's like bad. Um, uh, no, it basically says like based on the variables you've input, it'll take seventy days or something before all yeah, life like is wiped out. It's like an hour. It's like twenty-seven thousand hours or something yeah. before the whole world is a thing. Is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's and he's just like, and so you're like, their computers were not meant for that kind of query. Are you gonna? T- are you kidding me? Uh, he had to write a program for that first before uh, yeah, he could type yeah. in. This, this movie took place over three months. Um, yeah. So you know, this is probably not the best the best call by Carpenter, but like. In, in a movie that is otherwise very solid, they want it's you definitely sh- the worst scene. He's he's trying to to tell the audience what the stakes are, right? Which is an important thing to do. Like right. the scientists get it immediately, but you're sitting here thinking, like, well, I mean, what the worst case scenario is that he kills all these guys, and that would be unfortunate. But like, meh. but then you're like, oh, it's actually like way worse than right. that because if they don't stop it, then it will escape from here and kill everyone and kill everywhere. Yeah. So um, the stakes are, are raised. Blair knows this, breaks the stuff. Um, they are... Not just the radio. He breaks the uh, tractor, yeah. the airplanes. He, yeah, like he, 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 he makes the it so they cannot get away. Yeah, they're yeah. trapped, right? He's, he's trapped them all. While that was going on, they, they went to the Norwegian base and found everyone dead. Um, the place was torn all to yeah. pieces. Everyone's kind of dead. Blood everywhere. Um, axe yeah, it's a mess. The uh, they, they attempted to make a prequel to this movie that is the story of the Norwegian base and it was not good. Don't watch it. 2011, the thing. No. Um, but, uh, like we care, like, yeah, give me a break anyway. Um, so that's, so they're anyway, they, they have this long, uh, paranoid goings on. They're trying to figure out ways to detect it. They're trying to understand the creature, um, figure out who's who they don't trust each other they're locking each other out in the cold they're threatening to blow up the building they've all got guns and flamethrowers and weapons and uh they eventually settle on the same result that the, they settle on in the book which is um if you take a blood sample from a person and then you try to touch it with something hot in this case he gets a, some copper wire i think and heats it with the pilot light of a flamethrower right and uh they, and he tests everyone, and he's like, this is the final test. Everybody that's still alive is sitting in this room. They're basically all tied up except for McCready, and he's testing them all, uh, finds one, um, and it eats a guy, and then they kill it. Um, 
and they suddenly realize, oh, we left Blair locked in the shed and we right. haven't tested him. So they go out there, they find Blair uh, had mined under everything. He was like down in the bowels of the of the facility and was working on whatever he was working on down there. I think it's a, it's a spaceship. It's a spaceship, yeah. Um, it doesn't look nearly as finished, but... Uh, Anyway, that's yeah. that's what they found, and then they had the whatever this massive monster, uh, which was probably the weakest part of the movie, in my opinion, is the like the creature design of the last. It's kind of every time you see the the thing in the movie, it's a different shape. Right. You never really see its true form, right? And, which, um, which is good, yeah. But I agree with where you're going. Yeah. So they um, at the end of the movie, um, it shows a very large thing, and it's like a. Voltron of all the different right. messed up monsters that um, it had made previously. And they're all kind of stuck together and he blows it up with a action one liner and some dynamite. Um, and then the movie ends very nihilistically where there's only two characters left and they're just, and, and they're not sure. Nobody yeah. knows if one guy is the thing or not. There's some theories. There's some like fan theories about, well, you can't see this guy's breath. So he must be a thing. No, I don't. I don't buy it. I think Carpenter wanted you to not know, right? And even if they weren't, now their base is blown up. When yeah. the fires go out, they're going to freeze to death. Like it's just, it's a very bleak ending. This is different from the book. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. So there's your plot synopsis for the thing. Did I miss any any major parts? No, you I just we, watched it. I I did just watch it. I've um, seen it a bunch of times, but I haven't watched it in a little the, while. The all of that is good. Everything I have left to say is analysis. All right, let's move to that. Yeah. Um, you want to, you want to just jump in between, you want to do books first, movie first. Uh, let's just do them both, I guess. Okay. Let's, uh... So one of the things you mentioned that I just want to mention right off the, right out, right out of the gate, uh, is Carpenter, what Carpenter's really good at, um, in the film. And I think he's better than Campbell. Uh, okay. Is he's really good at foreshadowing, mm-hmm. um, Without tipping his hand. Okay. Okay. So I'll give you a couple of examples. You actually mentioned a lot of them, but I'm going to do them in an analysis context. So our our character introduction to McCready. Yeah. Uh, in the in the movie mm-hmm. is um, he's playing chess mm-hmm. on this chess wizard, and he makes a move, and he and he says audibly. I won't say what he actually says, but he says audibly. He's, he says a swear. <laughs> he says audibly. Uh, uh, to the effect of, I've got you now, you're mm-hmm. sweating it out, right? Mm-hmm. He's talking to the machine, right? And then the machine checkmates him. Yeah. Then he swears, mm-hmm. and then he dumps um, his JB whiskey yeah. into the hard drive. Uh, which, you know, on the surface, when you watch that scene on the surface, you're like, that is, you know, he's, he's what, what do we learn about McCready? We learn he's a man of action. <laughs> um, he's not uh, a tactician, Right, sure. but he's willing to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. um, to get the job done. He will break um, the rules. He'll if break he has the rules. To. Yeah, yeah, if he has to, um, and that's good, mm-hmm. right? But his, but but McCready is a man who doesn't have in the movie, mm-hmm. right? McCready is a man who who's who's after he's beat, his solution is to blow it up. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is literally how the movie ends. Yeah. It's right. Perfect. Like he, mm-hmm. he, it's a microcosm. It's a microcosm yeah. of the whole film, right? The whole film is McCready and the thing at the mm-hmm. end. And the thing has beat him. Yeah. It's beat him at every turn. Mm-hmm. Right. It just will not go away. And so he just blows the whole, yeah. blows it all to smithereens. Um, and we can, we could do some commentary on like, what is 
Carpenter interested in telling us, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. no solution. There's no point to life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. We could get into that kind of analysis. If you wanted to take a non non bleak view, you could think, um, well, they they're willing to sacrifice themselves to ensure the death of the thing. Yes, I don't. They don't say anything like that. It's not played up as like a big triumphant, like, well, we're going to take one for the team and sure. save the earth. Sure. But uh, they do. They ultimately, do. Yeah. Right. Ultimately, that's what they do. Um, but 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 it's just a really great. It's it's good character introduction. It mm-hmm. gives us what we need to know about McCready as a person, mm-hmm. um, as a character. Like, what kind of a hero is he going to be? He's a man of action. He's not a tactician. Um, but well, he's, he's not. He's not. He's no dummy. No. Right? Like, he, yeah. He he almost won. You know, like he's not—he's not a guy. He knows how to play chess. You right. know, like this is not a guy who just walks in the room and pushes the computer off the desk because he's not interested. Right. So there's there's some smarts there, but like if things start going not his way, he's going to get the last lap yeah. somehow. He can yeah. he can do that, and so I I think that that's really good. Yeah. And 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 continuing on with that theme, right? Again, we're we're early on, just you know, first 15, 20 minutes of the film. Um. When when they go to investigate the Nor- the Norwegian base, mm-hmm. um, first of all, one thing we didn't mention a difference between McCready book versus McCready film. Mm-hmm. McCready in the film is a pilot. Yeah, McCready in the book is a meteorologist. Yeah, um, but he's not. I, to my knowledge, he's not a pilot. Yeah, and so he they're talking about going up in the wind in the in the helicopter to go to the Norwegian base and he's not for it. He thinks, yeah. you know, the weather conditions aren't great. Mm-hmm. It's not worth the risk. And, uh, Gary, who's the leader of the, of the company. And I think maybe Blair, the doctor, uh, no, not Blair, somebody else can't remember. McCopper, McCopper, mm-hmm. the doctor, not Blair's the biologist. Um, but anyway, they, they're going to go up and <laughs> McCready says, you're really interested in saving these Swedes. Right, mm-hmm. and he gets corrected. No, no, mm-hmm. no, they're Norwegians. And then when they get there, he goes, "Man, these crazy Swedes." Mm-hmm. And they're like, "No, no, no, they're Norwegians." <laughs> and it happens like two or three times. Uh-huh. And what it tells you about McCready, right? You or you, you know, again, it's more character development from McCready that he's like this sort of uh, rough and tumble, yeah. not interested in the details, yeah. right? Just, just give me the job. I want to get it done. Very Kurt Russell kind yeah, of character, yeah, yeah. right? Which, and that's fine. That's mm-hmm. good. But the subtext there. Is that McCready doesn't know what he's looking at? Yeah, right. Like, it looks. You're calling it a Norwegian. I'm calling it a Swede. Mm-hmm. Right. There's this idea of like mistaken identity, mm-hmm. which is the which is where the all the conflict comes from. Yeah. Right. I don't know what I'm looking at. Nothing is as it seems. Mm-hmm. And so again, there's just these little things that Carpenter does mm-hmm. that I think are really subtle and like for our storytellers out there, really good thing to point to when it comes to like foreshadowing tipping without tipping your hand yeah and and i want to contrast that with frozen hell okay so frozen hell campbell i think i think who goes there i've not read who goes there but who goes there is probably better than frozen hell Mm -hmm. um because the first 50 pages he tips his hand campbell tips the hand too much Mm -hmm. he takes too much mystery out of an intrigue out of the out of the creature because yeah. the dreams yeah. that uh, sort of tell you that something's not right yeah. give you too much, mm-hmm. right? You you know within the first 25, 30 pages of the book, mm-hmm. of the short story, um, the novella, that um, the creature can change shape. It's, mm-hmm. It can it can look like anybody. It, you know, like like you're, you're, you're sort of – that's given to you in the first 
way, yeah. way too early for even a novella, right? And so yeah. it, where Car- Carpenter succeeds, where Campbell fails mm-hmm. in foreshadowing. I don't know if you have any. Well, you so in Who Goes There, there is allusion made to the dreams, but it's much less detailed. Yeah, um, they're just nightmares. Um, people who had been with the team that brought it in didn't want to be near it anymore because they were like under dirt. They were under strain. They didn't really. There may have been one or two dreams that it mentioned it looking like or having a different face or something like that, but it's not, it doesn't reveal the creature's powers and abilities, right. which are never very well defined, mm-hmm. which is good. Yeah. To the story's credit, you never know exactly how long does it take? Can it copy something that's already dead? What, how much over your mind can it read? Like, what does it know? Um, and, and in the book, uh, you don't, they don't know if it's an animal or if it's an intelligent being like right. a person that turns out that it is cause it can create machines and stuff like that. But it seems to behave like any wild animal would like it's cornered. It's just going to do what it's nature says to do, which is fight and run away and all that. So all those mysteries are revealed kind of slowly over time. Sure. Um, so this is probably a good place to interject that. Campbell himself, he he got the concept for this story. Actually, I say this: it's been a while since I read Navala Lee's book, Astounding. But um, one of the thing, one of the anecdotes from Campbell's early life was that his mother had a twin sister, who an identical twin sister, who did not like him. And um, so he would come home from school, and then just out of the corner of his eye, he would see his mom in the kitchen, and he'd say, "Hey, mom, how's it going?" And she'd be like, "Shut up, kid." And so he had this really she, bad experience. She like chain smoking. Yeah, I don't know. Um, she had this really bad experience where every so often he would be reminded that just because it looks like someone you care about, it may not really be. Yeah. And so I think later in life that that came into his head of like, what if what we look at is not what it what what it actually sure. is? And sure. that's kind of the idea here is the fear of like people that I trust. What if they're not really who they are? Um. And uh, and the paranoia is the source of the fear, mostly in the movie. Now, there's a lot of gross in the in the movie version of it that is amplified by the special effects, which yeah. are are very legendary. Yeah, why don't you why don't you take it from there? Um, so in the in the film, this is still considered to be one of the probably the best practical effects movies there is. Now they do they do a few things. They they do some stop motion. Um, there's I can't think of any off the top of my head. But they probably do some optical stuff. Um, a lot of it is just practical effects though. Yeah. It's robotic. Well, not robotics. It's puppetry. It's, um, uh, and it's just visceral stuff. They do, I guess robotics kind of, they have some like remote control little yeah, doodads. Right. Little ones, um, yeah. but, uh, I mean the first sequence where we see the thing kind of expose itself as otherworldly is with the dogs. And, um, the thing is already a dog, but it's, it's going to copy a dog. So it's kind of splitting into two dogs. Um, and when they find it, it's in mid transition. And, uh, the, if you go and watch the movie, the sequence is what you're looking at when you see that is a, is a, just an oversized puppet and they're underneath the floor working the, the head. No kidding. Yeah. Um, it's covered with like KY jelly and mayonnaise and they just wanted it to look gross. Yeah. Like it's secreting all kinds of horrible fluids and viscous and stuff like that. It's mission accomplished. Yeah. Um, and then uh, when they, when they come to attack it, it flees and it kind of transforms again into what looks like almost like a plant or a flower. And if you look at that, 
the parts of the flower are dog body parts. Yeah. Like the petals are dog tongues. And uh, like there's a part where the dog, the initial dog's head opens up right. and the skull falls out and there's like a tentacle that comes out. I mean, it's just horribly disgusting stuff. Right. Um, fascinating, incredible imaginative, imagination. Sure. Um, and that's just one. Right. That's um, just one. Some of the effects that they did that they could have done with this various trickery that they went, they went above and beyond. Um, the sequence where they bring in, oh, I can't remember what character it is that they have brought into the, well, I can remember his face, but I don't remember his, um, his character's name, but it's, it's one of the older kind of heavier guys. They bring him in his, he's dead. His heart has stopped. So they're going to do copper is going to do, um, Oh yeah. The, uh, defibrillator paddles. And he gets ready to shock him, and of course we, the audience, are aware that like, oh, like, so we have we've known that electricity is is a problem for the thing. It might hurt the thing. So when he goes up to push down, a giant mouth with teeth opens in the stomach of the patient, and when he puts his arms down because he's not expecting that, it bites his arms off. Right. Well, when they shot that scene, they hired a Vietnam veteran who was a double amputee to no wear kidding. a lifelike mask of, of the actor to come in for that two seconds where he's flailing around with no arms No kidding. rather than try to mask the arms later in post-production or something. They, they did that. And it talked about that scene they had to do. I think they said two takes and it took them like 10 hours to do both of those takes because they weren't happy with the first one. And it was just like, I love that about this movie. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that I just love gross stuff because it is, it is, uh, some of it's hard to watch. It really does. It is horrifying. Yeah, sure. But, um, what you've got here, this is a lost art. Mm. Um, you've got a team of dedicated craftsmen who are pursuing visual storytelling with their talent. Yep. And this is, and, and modern times, <clears throat> this is one of the problems of the 2011 remake. They would just have a horde of guys at desks CGIing all that stuff. Sure. Um, that's like the you know you you have those movies. Okay, so you've got you've got um, not Dunkirk. What's the one where it's one shot? The Mendez. Nineteen. Is it nineteen? Ten. Eleven. Nineteen. 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 Something. Nineteen. Something. Nineteen seventeen. Nineteen seventeen. I think it's that's right. That's right. <laughs> that was pathetic. Nineteen ten. There wasn't even a war on yet. Nineteen seventeen. Um, so 1917 is famous for looking like one long shot. It is not actually one long shot. There was some trickery done, but there's not a lot of it, right? right? Like there's, it's a lot of big shots, actors moving around real sets, knowing their lines, hitting their marks, right. lots of extras, lots of props. Um, really an impressive accomplishment. Fun sure. to watch. Even if you're not interested in war movies, if, if you're into movies and movie making, you should watch it. Yeah. Really good movie. Yeah. Um, then you compare that to something like Star Wars Episode Three, right? Uh-huh. Star Wars Episode Three, uh, Revenge of the Sith, has what was it used to be famously long, unbroken shot at the very beginning of the movie. It's a space battle, which is a really neat shot. Um, lots of fighting going on. Really kind of like opens your eyes to like what space battle would look like between two equals, which we hadn't seen in the previous movies because, except for the you know I guess Return of the Jedi a little bit, but. Yeah. Um, 
but it's like, oh, it's 15 minutes or something of, of an unbroken shot. And then you're like, well, it's 15 minutes of guys at desks typing. Like right. it's not, they, they worked, but they aren't. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to say I could do better, which doesn't matter. Cause I'm not the standard of what is good, but like, if it doesn't look right, you just come back tomorrow and keep going. Right. You can't really do that with these, with these physical props and they age better. Like this is a 1982 movie. And if you watch it, you'll be convinced that these monsters are running around somewhere. Sure. Um, because they have mass to them. The characters can interact with them. Even if they don't touch them, they're just, they share the space with them. Right. They're looking right at them. You can tell. Sure. Um, and they're just wonderful examples of that. And I want to, I want, I wrote the name down of the, some of you probably know him already, but, um, Ray Bot Botan or Botan, uh, with some help from Stan Winston, who worked on everything that was good. Yeah. Winston was on his on Predator and Terminator. He did a lot of James Cameron stuff. Cool. Um. So, uh, but Botan was the the main guy. He was working. Uh, he basically had to check himself into like rehab after the movie was done because he was working so much, seven days a week, fifteen or sixteen hours a day. Wow. Just um, put poured his soul into this movie, and man, you, you can, mean tell. You can tell. Yeah. You can tell it is, I mean, we're talking about a nearly 40 year old movie Sure, and it is, um, it holds up. Yeah. Most of it does. There's a couple of janky stop motion shots, but like, that's more of a, that's more of a photography problem. I think that a special effects problem. Yeah. So, um, so watch it for that. If nothing else to yeah. know what, what movies used to be like before CGI screwed them, screwed them up. Sure. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's really well said. You could just tell. And, uh, you know, there, 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 there are guys who really enjoy Campbell and I think wanted to see this, uh, paragon of science fiction remembered well. And, and it comes out in the Kurt Russell yeah. 82 Carpenter film. Yeah. Um, so we, I, I do want to spend a little bit of time, not a whole lot, but a little bit of time just talking about like overall worldview. Uh, we've kind of already addressed this, but I yeah. just want to put a fine point on it. Um, that Campbell and, and and Carpenter are coming from very different places. Yeah. Right? Um, very different so, eras of very, history. Right. Very mm -hmm. different eras of history. That's the part I kind of wanted to hit on. Yeah. Is that, like, you get the 1930s pre-World War mm -hmm. to um, science is going to lead us into the utopia yeah. kind of optimism mm -hmm. in who goes there yeah. and uh, frozen yeah, this, hell. This belief that the, that atomic power would open the cosmos to our exploration. It would result in post scarce environment. Right. And it, cause energy would be so abundant that you could, you could get whatever it's sort of star Trek style. Where sure. It's like we yeah. Have, we have warp cores that have virtually unlimited energy and we have a machine that can turn energy into matter. So we can just, Tell it to do stuff. Right. So nobody works anymore. Right. Except that they want to because they want to like better themselves through their right. personal accomplishments and stuff like that. Right. So, yeah. Which is great. It's sure. a lot of fun. Right. Sure. So, so you have that, right. You have, so you have that piece and yeah. that's sort of, and that's kind of typical of golden age sci-fi. I'm yeah. again, I'm reminded of those serial Superman cartoons. Mm -hmm. I, I know that, you know, they're not exactly doing, being done at the same time, but, um, you know that sort of that that uh, scientific optimism, right? Mm -hmm. Versus Carpenter's uh, nihilism, yeah, right. That that is just so prevalent in mm -hmm. the eighties and nineties. Well, it's prevalent. Uh, a lot I mean, of prevalent his specific work. If you were if you're a fan of Carpenter's, not all of his movies are good. Some of them are really bad, but a lot of his best movies are really downbeat. Yeah, 
And so, you know, just it's it's I think it's really interesting to me that plot beat for plot beat, these stories are very close. Mm-hmm. They're very, very similar. Similar enough that I would argue that there are no significant plot mm-hmm. um, de- uh, derivations or deviations mm-hmm. yeah. um, that make them really different stories. No, and, they're the same story. And yeah. yet they're completely different in tone, mm-hmm. in um in in philosophy. mood, yeah. in theme, in mm-hmm. philosophy, right? I mean, they're just totally different. And um, you know, we, we talked a lot about uh, one maybe one of Campbell's problems is that his scientists are all caricatures, yeah, right? Of so like, they're of like all action enlightened heroes. as well. Like, you can tell. Okay, not only do we have a lot of hope in atomic power, but like mankind will rise to any challenge, right? Which is good. Um, I kind of like that. Like, we will solve this problem, no matter how bad things look. We're gonna find a way out. Sure, and that's that's kind of a big takeaway of his. Yeah, and so so you have like that, and mm-hmm. then you have the through the, science. Yeah, the the men in uh, Carpenter's film are, uh, you know, they're um, they're very uh, selfish, flawed, s- flawed, mm-hmm. self absorbed. Yeah. Um, they're very. Uh, there's a lot of like. Um, the paranoia is, is this part of that is 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 trying to build well, up that that sense. When but. we meet them, we we see that they are all very flawed, right? Like the base is not well, like the base is kind of not. I mean, it's not filthy, but like there's stuff hanging, there's underwear hanging up, drawn, which is in the book. They mention that as well. Like they have, you know, it, it's a bunch of guys living in close quarters. Sure. Everything's always wet because everybody goes outside and gets frozen and then comes back in. It's just kind of hard living conditions, but like. They smoke too much in the movie. They uh, drink too much. They there's no there's nobody who appears to be faithfully pursuing pure science right. in their regular occupation. It's not until the thing shows up that everybody kind of gets energized to like start investigating and doing things. It almost feels like they're just waiting around that's, for their. That's it. That's it. Yeah, you just nailed it right on the head. That's the difference, mm-hmm. right? It, there's a there's a bustle of like sunlight in Campbell, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. metaphorically, right? Like they're, they're constantly working towards this higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Carpenter, everybody is just resigned yeah. to a bleak living, existence. Living in this miserable place for yeah, some reason. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that is the difference, mm-hmm. right? And it, so it comes out tonally it, mm-hmm. in, in these, in these. Everybody's two, bored. Yeah. All right. the time. Yeah. They're just, they're, like you said, it's like they're waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas, the men in Car- and Campbell's work, uh, original work, are you know men of men of action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they so have initiative. They have initiative, yeah. right? That that's so that that is right. That is that is perfect. And so you know, I think you know, looking, we've already you know, we've already kind of said this, but looking at the time, mm-hmm. right, the the historical context of when these uh, things were made is is really telling and, and is revealing of that. So I, I kind of wanted to ask this sort of general question of you. What, um, for our storytellers out there, for our listeners who want to be storytellers, what impact should should the historical context in which they are living right now, um, in in the culture that they're living in, wherever, uh, in, in, in this day and age, in 2021, quickly coming to a close, uh, what impact should that have on storytelling and should be we should we be wary? Should we embrace it? Mm-hmm. Is it a thing? Should should art reflect the time that it's written in? Should it be timeless? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've I've kind of been been challenged with these questions. I want to know if you have any thoughts on that. Oh uh, well, this is big. This is a big question. Um, I am speculating that 
we're, we're engaged in a cultural shift. And so I think that if you, if you were to write something today that was very much anchored in 2021, it would be very dated within a year or two. Um, a lot's going to happen. And, uh, you know, um, I mean, we've seen that there's, there's movies and books that are fad type things. They, yeah. they come in, they're maybe powerful for a brief period of time. And then they're immediately out of style, out of fashion, timeless stories are always in fashion. Um, I think that somebody can read Campbell's story and enjoy it, no matter how jaded you are or how much you think science has failed or how much you think mankind is not as good as they are shown to be in the book version, that you can enjoy Campbell's version of it because I think the way Campbell set it up, it served a couple of roles, but one of the roles is that you have a group of exceptional people Mm. who have volunteered to go do hard work because of their... Um, their chosen vocation, and we can assume because of a love of, of uh, pursuing knowledge. Mm-hmm. In the in the movie version, we have Carpenter, who is coming from a more jaded era. Um, this is 1982, so this is early 80s. 70s were a hard time. A lot of people compare the, the last couple of years to the 70s, where there's just been social problems of, of similar types, um, crime and stuff like that. Uh, and it's, you know, this is, this is 1982. We have the return of the Jedi comes out in 1983. We have ET coming out, uh, 1984. Maybe that sounds right. It's 1980s. Um, so this is the era of, yeah, science fiction is interesting. People are interested in watching it. Um, this movie didn't, didn't sell a lot of tickets when it came out. Um, and maybe because of its, uh, you know, because of its kind of more jaded worldview, it's more like its heroes are are very much. Uh, they feel like you know they're supposed to be scientists, but they really feel like a bunch of like. No offense if you're a truck driver, but I was going to say truck drivers sure. or um, mechanics or right. like they're regular guys. Yeah. Um, and they're they're they feel blue collar. Right. They don't feel like academics. Um, none of them are are action stars. Um. Except for maybe Keith David, he sort of looks like one. Um, he's one of the last, the last two survivors. Childs, right? Yeah, yeah, Childs, um, and Kurt Russell is the other one. But even he kind of looks normal, like he's right. not like a like Schwarzenegger or something like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you got to be careful with anchoring things in your time, and that's one of the reasons why I think science fiction is a is a helpful medium for you to write if you want to uh, avoid your time, if you want to like not write contemporaneously. Um, you can write sci-fi, yeah. But if you if you're well read and you read science fiction, you can tell what era these things were written in. Sure, like because the worldview will seep through no matter what the setting is. Right. Uh, let me let me give an example. This is a, this is an extreme example because I think that just helps sometimes to clarify what I'm talking about. Sure. But uh, teen fiction has been, and I guess is still in the middle of a um kind of a Marxist dystopia era um, that's been like that for 15 years, maybe mm-hmm. um, people know hunger games. They know divergent. They know the maze runner. Um, virtually all of those books have a handful of traits that are similar. You have a hero who is usually not a good hero. They're right. usually either an anti-hero or they're just sort of like, they don't have good agency. 
Um, and you have a dystopian world where everything's going bad and they're the only, like they're the only hope. Everything is class-based. Everybody's grouped into classes, whether it's a district where you live or you're lumped into this group because you have a tattoo of this kind, like whatever. They're sure. all class-based. Sure. So um, those are science fiction. They're not supposed to take place in 2020, but they are very dated. Right. Like they're very much a product of right now. Um, before that, it was kind of like supernatural stuff. Twilight was the thing. and Yeah, like paranormal um, romance kind yeah. of thing. Um, and, and those things will always linger. Like like dystopia did not get invented in the last 15 years. Um, it just got ruined in the last 20 years, <laughs> 15 years. Um, right. And paranormal, paranormal romance will continue. Um, sure. Which that, you can make an argument that goes back to Dracula. Right. And like there's a lot of ho- old horror stories sure. that are, that involve that element. Like that's part of it. But, they're trying to. They're trying to. It's kind of like what you said, where with Daredevil they borrowed from Homer. They borrowed one of Homer's tools from his toolbox right. and Medius Res. Um, it's not going to make Daredevil a timeless classic, but it is going to elevate it a little bit. Sure. And so if you're borrowing from the greats, the timeless stories that are not anchored in your moment, you're going to elevate them a little bit. Yeah. That's and good. the more of those kinds of things you have in it, the the less the less anchored your your writing will be sure in your time and then it will hopefully reach people from other times yeah i know i think that's well said and and i do think uh, if i could incur you know put a word of encouragement before i go into my last little piece of analysis here and we can wrap this up um you know if you're out there and you're going to be writing a story you're trying to learn about storytelling um timelessness is is a big part mm-hmm. you know if, if your story has a shelf life of five minutes yeah you know that's not good right um s- seek to uh discuss the deep truths the timeless truths the universal truths mm-hmm. um and themes that have stuck with uh the western um thought western thought and western canon for for millennia yeah. you're um, not going to be able to reinvent the wheel right um if you have favorite books if you have friends who have favorite books Look at them. Find out what's similar. What is it that is making you want to watch them and read them again and again? Sure. Um, why do people like Harry Potter so much? Sure. You know, there's ask yourselves those questions. Um, why is it that Homer has lasted for thousands of years? Yeah. Harry Potter's not going to last thousands of years, but he's going to be around. Sure. You know, like, sure. uh, you know, generations of kids will enjoy Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, so why what's the difference yeah and what's the difference between that and something that lasts basically no time it really never sells anything so yeah no that's good um now i'm gonna somewhat contradict everything we've just said but i'm going somewhere um the last piece of analysis that i have and i don't know if it's just because the setting Mm -hmm. um which is probably another storytelling 101 thing we should talk about um but the setting of both of these uh well uh frozen hell and the thing uh is the antarctic and um so I don't know if it's because of that that it reminded me of this, but I don't think so. Uh, but I got a lot of Jack London vibes when okay. I was reading uh, Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very different. Mm-hmm. They're they're different authors. Uh, but the very end of uh, Frozen Hell, mm-hmm. uh, when McCready has figured out how to tell, mm-hmm. uh, it talks about the men of the camp. And every time they find a thing, mm-hmm. it talks about how... Uh, they're they're not quick enough with the torch mm-hmm. to kill it. The men descend on it yeah. and just like rip it apart. Yeah, right. And I don't want to read too much into 
a story like this. Um, but I was I've, I I kind of was wondering like is Campbell trying to let us know that we're all things, right? Like that these men oh, yeah. who are enlightened mm-hmm. um, and supposed to be men of science, they're really just if you if you were to strip them down to their mm-hmm. bare instincts, they're they're just animals under the proper strain and duress. Yeah, if you would, if you rip yeah. away all of the trappings of civilization, mm-hmm. right, um, and and the facade of enlightenment yeah. that were really just things. I, I don't think so. I I, I kind of was getting that, but then at the end, so so that happens. Yeah, and then at the but then at the end, they sort of have this triumphant. Um, destruction of the last thing and then yeah. atomic energy and so i thought well maybe he what he's saying is this is what humanity used to be but science is going to take us yeah. into the into the you know which yeah. actually that's kind of where i landed is that like this the base primal instinct of man is is you know um very very uh uh evil and and uh well maybe not evil but but animalistic yeah. and and uncivilized mm-hmm. but that science has been in the process of civilizing us and atomic energy yeah. is going to be the thing through, that, through obtaining knowledge we have kind of ascended right above that yeah. right we've risen above that and so um you know and 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 th- so so that's one that's like that that theme or that that repeated motif is one that's like hey yeah, we used to be this, but we're on the rise. Mm-hmm. Carpenter's film is, you know, we're nothing matters, right? Yeah. We're all, you know, you, you do your best to live in a harsh and hostile environment until mm-hmm. it claims you, right? Yeah. Um, so very nihilistic there. Um, the reason why I was bringing up Jack London, though, is because Jack London is a naturalist, right? Yeah. Who says that uh, the natural world is, is the highest form of good it's mm-hmm. it's what we can know um you can't really be mad if you die because right. of nature because of nature um, I'm reminded of uh, to build a fire to build a fire yeah. right where the the story is told at least partially from the perspective of his dog who's right just kind of like well he's dead right i'm gonna go find something to eat right um very neutral yeah it's um, it's 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 amoral dispassionate yeah amoral neutral all those all those things like and and Campbell's not that, right? So when I was reading that one part of the text, I was like, man, this is getting really Jack London on me. And mm-hmm. I was a little, it was almost like tonally dissonant. Mm-hmm. Another thing we should talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very tonally dissonant. Um, but then you have the last scene and the sort of this uplifting science is taking us into the upper echelon. So I was like, oh, okay, we're, we're back. Um, but yeah, there's that one scene that just, it, it, I got those, I got that Jack London vibe. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of. I did end. not have that experience when I read it. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I. I just. Um, to me, it just seemed like, ah, we finally got him, and we're going to be quick on the draw because we're tired of losing. Like we're, we have taken back the initiative. Gotcha. Okay. It may be that. You yeah. know, that that may be a more fair. I may be reading too much into it. Um, but I, I do think whether it whether he was saying that or not he's definitely optimistic right mm-hmm. the, it's the not jack london is jack, jack london is not optimistic he's mm-hmm. also not pessimistic yeah. like we said um campbell is very optimistic about about our future um but i was wondering like yeah if you had gotten the same like the almost like the last page and a half three pages whatever it is is essentially campbell's commentary on like primal man to you know, man of tomorrow. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I kind of sapien, right? Like the right. knowledge. Yeah. Right. Um, which, you know, in, in comparison to Carpenter is, I, I think you and I would both agree. Both of those, both of those views are fundamentally flawed. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that man, um, is not this, uh, Neanderthal rising to 
godhood mm-hmm. through knowledge, yeah. through enlightenment, um, which is kind of Campbell's view, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also, it, we're not nihilists, right? We don't think everything is meaningless, and mm-hmm. essentially you struggle to claw and fight your way to survive, and then die to eke anywhere. out a living, yeah. you know, and some meager happiness before you die and mm-hmm. nothing matters, um, which is, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, yeah. um, that's Carpenter. <laughs> And so we we would we would sort of reject both of those for a mm-hmm. Christian worldview, which says uh, man is made for a purpose, cease fallen. But mm-hmm. but um, there's a there's a glorious telos for those who are. You know, there's a there's a particular kind of horror that comes from cosmic horror because we recognize as believers that the being that came from outside in came to save, mm. right? Like the incarnate Christ came to save us. He could have and would have been within his rights to come here to kill us all. Right. And so when we have a cosmic horror film where an outsider comes in and is indiscriminately killing everyone, I think that that's particularly chilling on a on a level that's deep enough that you're not like, oh, I'm I'm, wow. I'm literally trembling. But it's like this is an inversion of sure of the the good the goodness like of what of what the Christian story is. Yeah. And wow. so. Um, that I had and, not considered that. That is great. That is yeah. well said. There's like an instinctual fear of an outsider that is hostile. And usually the outsider is like an, almost an all powerful, yeah. inconquerable kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of, uh, we've referenced Frankenstein before, right? Sure. Like the horror of Frankenstein is not the fact that there's a superhuman monster running around killing people. The horror is that a man made someone, but instead of loving that creature, and guiding it and giving it direction the way God did for us, he abandoned it right. and left it to its own devices. Right. And so that's why, spoiler alert, Dr. <laughs> Frankenstein is the villain of the of the Frankenstein book. Sure. Because, um, but because that's the scary thing, is that your God abandoned you. Right. And you don't, that isn't the kind of thing that wakes you up at night, like thinking that there's that in the closet, you know, like making noises. Monsters, you know, you say, oh, there's a thing in the closet. Like, that's a little bit scary, but like, or somebody jumping out at you, jump scares, all those kinds sure. of things make us afraid. But something that makes a true horror story is got to have that depth yeah. of fear. And I think that, that like, the, Lovecraft was good about that. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the earth where you thought you were the dominant race is really ruled by the old ones who, you know, um, who've always been. And, right. Uh, which is a, kind of a similar uh, kind of deal with like God being not what we thought. And uh, so that, that may be something there. Sure. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how firm I am on that idea, but I think there may be something to that of a, of an outsider who can take on flesh. Yeah. Um, and is here to kill people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah. that's good. I think that's really good. Well, what do you think, man? Should we wrap it up? Let me check my notes here, see if there's anything else important I had written down. Well, so, uh, side note, right? So the movie, the movie um, barely made back its budget. Um, it probably has by now with streaming and DVD sales and stuff. Sure, it made made its money back. Um, remakes, I'm sure John Carpenter's going to get some checks. <laughs> um, critically panned when it first came out. Um, but right now I checked the, the scores today, 82% critic score, 92% user review on Rotten Tomato. So okay. it's pretty well liked. I mean, even critic 82 is not that strong, but critics are jerks. So sure. Whatever. Um, 
So what do you think? Book, good, bad, overrated, underrated? I want to go and read uh, Who Goes There. Okay. I think I think Frozen Hell is very clearly an unfinished manuscript. Yeah. That has good merit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mate for all the reasons that we've already talked about yeah. is is not the, like the polished completed work. Mm-hmm. I know who goes there is essentially the same thing; it's just shorter. Um, but I would like to still go back and look at it to just to do some of my, of my own comparative analysis. But definitely, definitely recommend Campbell. Yeah, I think there's a reason why he's lauded as one of the greats of the golden age of science fiction. Frozen Hell was fantastic. I was mm-hmm. uh, very pleased with it, um, except for the few minor things already mentioned. Uh, the, how about, I mean, we'll, we'll do yours. Well, so I've read both of the books and I would say if you're going to read one, um, you should read who goes there. It is, I think it's the, it's more clearly the, the polished work. Sure. And, uh, if you're a completionist, you want to read them both just to compare, then it's probably worth your time if you can find a copy inexpensively. Um, but if, if you can't, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend the money on the extra copy of frozen hell. Um, because it's just it's good enough as yeah. who goes there. It's really pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, I recommend it. It's very good. Yeah, definitely recommend the story. Um, film. Yeah. Uh, I love. This I love this movie. movie. Yeah, it this is, is definitely in my top ten. Uh, it's a great <laughs> film. Yeah. I know it's super nihilistic. Yeah. Um, I'm usually not a fan of those kinds of movies, yeah. but this one just I don't know, man. There's enough ambiguity in the ending that you don't have to be depressed if you don't want to. Sure. You can kind of just be like. No, they got out of it. Because <laughs> when when the movie closes, there are two characters still alive. They're they're a little tired and beat up, but like they might be able to rig up a way to get out of this situation. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. I. I. I practical effects for all. I won't rehash that, but you you did a good job covering that. Uh, I think Kurt Russell's really good. I mean, he's kind of yeah. classic Kurt Russell. It's not like it's not gonna like you know, make you think new things about Kurt Russell, but he's great in it. You know, (laughs) that's classic Kurt. Um, I think that the supporting cast is really good, except for, you know, the one scene with the, with the computer. There's really, there's not very many missteps. It Mm -hmm. paces really well. Um, it gives, it does give me an ending. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not big on horror. I'm not big on, um, I'm not a big horror guy either. This is but this, this is a great movie. It's though. a great film. Yeah. Great, great film. Uh, do you want to do you want to take a shot at which one's better? Oh, uh, this is a tough one. This is tough. This is tough. I think if I so if somebody was like you could only have the book or the movie ever again, I would probably pick the movie. Yeah, yeah. Take the movie. I think I'd take the movie too. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's hard. I, Campbell's great though. Yeah. I, that's not it's not any kind of disparagement again. I think me. that I think that what tips it over the edge for me is the what Campbell wrote here is a very is lends itself readily to the visual medium. Yeah, that's um, true. And the way that they imaginatively took because in the book there's a description of the thing. Um, it talks about, and they uh, they're not sure if it, if it's really the thing. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can kind of see this blue monster. Um, it's a sort of a blue octopus looking thing. It's full of tentacles and stuff. Has red eyes. Um, they don't ever do that in the movie. You're never sure what it looks like. But I think that because of the way he wrote it, it's just it's got atmosphere in spades. It's um, the music is good. Mm. Um, allegedly, Ennio Morricone wrote the music. That's the guy who did the music for the uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, oh, bunch okay. of spaghetti westerns. 
it sounds like John Carpenter's music, though. It sounds like synth wave or something. Sure. So it's very subdued and minimal. Uh, uh, the movie feels so isolated. It does. Uh, you sit in the room with your friends watching it. You feel like you're alone. You feel like you're alone. Um, yeah. So they just did a really good job of telling Campbell's story. So I don't. It's hard to pick one. That's true. Um, That's true. But I think that Campbell should get some mad props for how good the movie turned out because yeah. he wrote it in a way that they didn't really have to fiddle with it much right. to make it into to what it, it is. To what it is, yeah. So yeah, I guess I'd pick the movie, but that's a very narrow narrow end. gap. Yeah, narrow gap. Well, yeah, the thing, the thing, and let's see, what's uh, uh, oh for further viewing and reading? Yes. So my my recommendation for further reading, which we've mentioned a couple of times, is Astounding by Alec Navala Lee, um, which I thought was a really interesting biography. Um, Navala Lee does, had done a lot of work. We, he gets some credit for this this copy of Frozen Hell here. He actually wrote the foreword for this edition. Um, and if you are interested in old sci-fi, it's really a must-read um, mm. to kind of get the feel for like basically who after Jules Verne and like the really old science fiction writers who kind of invented it, who really took the torch on? Well, there's a bunch of these guys uh, with Campbell kind of as their um, mastermind. Yeah. So really recommend that one for further viewing. Do you have anything? Cause I've got one for further viewing. I don't, I, I didn't come prepared. This is, yeah, you're on the spot. Okay. Um, so I'm going to recommend the thing from another world, 1951. Yeah. Uh, directed by Christian Nyby and Howard Hawks. Um, that is a version of this book. Um, it's not as good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is a pretty good movie. They didn't have the special effects to do the shape-shifting alien concept. So he's basically like a plant Frankenstein walking around bothering everybody until they kill him. Um, spoiler alert. But uh, it's pretty good. It's worth your time, especially if you like old kind of um, retro B horror yeah. films, which is a kind of a fun genre to go back to from time to time. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's some there's some names you'll recognize in it. I can't remember who plays the monster, but it's it's somebody who is well known. I cannot remember who it is, but gotcha. Um, yeah, that's my recommendation. I like so, it. I have a suggestion for our next one. Yeah, I picked this one, so you pick the next okay. one. Okay. This just came to me this week. You were asking for recommendation for a nonfiction. Yeah. And I should have done research on this to make sure that there's a book version of this, but I'm pretty sure there's a book version of this. Um, and I would like us to do The Ghost and the Darkness. The Ghost and the Darkness. Have you seen The Ghost and the Darkness? I have no idea what you're talking oh, about. Oh, <laughs> man. We're going to have to do a watch party for The Ghost and the Darkness. <laughs> This is not a horror film. Okay. This is not a horror film. This is a this is a true story about man-eating lions. Oh. So, and it it, it stars Val Kilmer. Okay. And uh, you, Michael you just Douglas. Said, you just said the two magic words, <laughs> which is, well, two magic phrases, uh, man-eating lions and Val Kilmer. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's nobody's huckleberry in this one. He's uh, playing an Irishman. So okay. Uh, if you're down, then, then well, this it may be a little bit before we I don't know how long the book is. Sure. I'm pretty sure the book is called The Man-Eaters of Savo. Oh, okay. So if you're out there listening and you're looking, if there's, there's a chance that I'm wrong about that. So um, just try to look up and see if there's a book version of The Ghost in the Darkness and watch The Ghost in the Darkness between now and then if you want to follow along with us. Yeah. Um, uh, I love that movie and watched it probably too young and have watched it a million times. So I'm really excited that you haven't seen it. You're going to watch yeah, it sometime. Is, this is good. I'm uh, excited. So 
that's going to be a nonfiction book uh, combined with a sort of a biopic, I guess. The Ghost in the Darkness. The Ghost in the Darkness. Okay, I'm ready. Um, all right, uh, we've got a couple of things to do to sign off. If anybody is in Cookville and you're looking for a nice warm place to park your carcass and play a board game, <laughs> I highly recommend the Table Board Game Lounge. I was just there the other night and we played Outer Rim. Yeah. Star Wars Outer Rim by somebody who makes that. Oh, gosh. I can't remember right I now. I don't either. It's, they have several got games. Some good stuff. Yeah, and they have several Star Wars titles. Outer Rim is a really good game. But uh, uh, go to the table, check in there, and play one of their hundreds of games. And it's uh, it's not quite December yet, but if you want to get good Christmas pictures, they have a really cool display there. So take your kids there, play a board game, uh, get a picture taken with the Christmas stuff. Yeah. And if you're in Cookville uh-huh. and you're looking for a, a guy who knows a little bit about storytelling and perhaps dabbles, maybe even pedals in storytelling. I do pedal stories. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this great place called Walls of Books. Yes, uh, got got a location cookbook. Got one in Mount Juliet. Uh-huh. So two locations. Yeah, and then two, there's two uh, there's uh, eighteen, seventeen. I need to count the stores every week or every time we do one of these. I'm always not sure of the number. Okay. There's like somewhere around twenty stores. Check your area, see if you've got one. If you don't, find an independent bookstore to yes. support locally. Yes. Um, and if there's not one, start one. Start one. Yeah, we're gonna need as many as we can get our hands uh, on. Yeah, here pretty uh, soon. And uh, yeah, yeah, come by and visit. Uh, we can order you a copy of Frozen Hell or any of the books that we've discussed on any of our episodes so far, if we don't already have them in stock. And let's see. So we are also a part of the uh, Servants and Heralds. What are we? A podcast network? Uh, a general network? We're a we're a consortium of. Content creators. Ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Neanderthals. Uh, yeah. but no, we are, we are a group of content creators. Yeah, I guess content creators is, is probably fine? the best. It's uh, it's basically a blog space uh, podcast uh, uh, dumping site for a handful of us. And um, you, the website is, to, is live now. I was on it uh, yesterday. It was live. So you can find it at www.servantsandherald.com. Dot com that's servants with that that's plural both are plural servants and heralds and and is spelled out it's not an ampersand um so check it out our our podcast will be there there are other podcasts there if you like this kind of thing um more content's being added all the time uh the site is new so if it if it messes with you uh just give us some time to iron out the kinks but check out the other guys that are writing and creating content for servants and heralds um, check out our sister podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Deo, where they discuss films from a Christian worldview with the host, uh, Jeff, and his most of the time co-host, Jared, and often special guests. Yes. They're better podcasters than we are, so they have special guests. <laughs> we compensate for that by having two hosts, so we don't have to we don't have to face the fear of rejection as much by having guests turn us down. We're probably going to have special guests soon, though, on some of our episodes. I've been sworn... That you know, on a blood oath, that we will have one special guest when we do uh, the man eaters. Uh, oh, uh, eaters of the dead. Eaters of the dead. Yeah, yeah sorry, eaters of the dead. Yes. Uh, yeah, we will definitely do that. We have a we have a peer who's a, a, a scholar of of uh, eaters of the dead. Um, so. St- <laughs> oh goodness. So uh, I think that wraps it up. I think that wraps it up. Um, 
I got nothing else. All right. So thanks for tuning in, yeah. and thanks for sticking us out. This one was not quite as long as the Dune episode. Not at least. quite. We beat Jurassic Park by a good bit, I but hey, this was a good conversation. These yeah. are good, good movie, good books. Um, tune in next time to Script v Manuscript, and um, just join us in our journey to discover what makes good stories good and great stories great. Signing off. I am Terry. I'm Joe. Thanks for joining us.